Okay, John chapter 3, we're back in John's Gospel. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some in the seats below you or in front of you. We are going through the Gospel of John, and if our Lord wills, we will finish chapter 3 today. (laughs) Uh, We spent some time in this chapter And I just want to kind of catch us up to where we've been in John chapter 3. It's been a while. Um, But you remember when we opened this chapter, we saw the story of Nicodemus, the Pharisee, probably a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a ruling Jew in uh, John chapter 3 verse 1. And he came in and and he has this encounter at night with Jesus. And he came in kind of thinking that he knew something about our Lord. He said, hey, I know that you're a teacher sent from God. We get it. We see who you are. And Jesus, you remember, told him that you cannot even see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. Something supernatural has to take place in our hearts and in our minds for us to really understand the gospel, to really understand who Jesus is and what he's done. So John chapter 3 is a very important chapter in, in the Bible because it begins to unpack for us a greater understanding of salvation. That faith in Jesus is not simply an act of the will of man. It's not just a decision that I make where I believe in the truth about Jesus, but it's a supernatural work that takes place in our hearts that God does by His Spirit. We then read that great chapter, or that great verse, John 3.16, and we talked about the mission of our Lord that He came to this world not to condemn, but to save the world from perishing out of His great love. And of course we learn there that this world is perishing. That apart from faith in Jesus Christ, we are all headed to an eternal death. A couple weeks ago, we saw this account of John the Baptist. And you remember, one of his disciples was a little bit disgruntled at the fact that Jesus and His disciples were baptizing in the same area. Apparently he didn't really understand who Jesus was. You remember John the Baptist basically told him, It's always been about Jesus. He must increase and I must decrease. And that is where we will pick up today. And we're in John chapter 3, again, verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. You may be familiar with the name Friedrich Nietzsche. He was a German philosopher. He lived from 1844 to 1900. And for our context today, I bring him up because he is, he is known for a quote, kind of an infamous quote. Maybe you've heard it. Uh, They've made some movies kind of taking a spin-off of this quote. Nietzsche says this, God is dead. 
and we have killed him. <laughs> God is dead, and we have killed him. Now, he doesn't mean that there is a God who has actually died because Nietzsche was an atheist. But what he means is that humanity's need for the idea of a God is no longer necessary. See, Nietzsche would say that science and philosophy has gotten us to the point where societies don't need this concept of a God, which he thought was, of course, false. He would say that we don't need religion to tell us about morality because philosophy has progressed to the point where it can define for us what morality is. And we see in our day the fruit of that sort of thinking. He would say that we don't need religion, we don't need a God to tell us that all human life is sacred or that all human life has value. Science is able to do that for us. And again, we see the fruit of that in our culture today. Of course, Christians, we would heartily disagree. And we would say not only is God alive, not only is Jesus alive, but mankind has never lost our great need for our God and to be reconciled to Him. And we would understand that any society or any civilization without God is a society or a civilization without hope. So as we close out John chapter 3 today, I believe John is in some ways summarizing the rest of the chapter. The thing that has just stood out on the page for me in this section is hope for the Christian. That there is great hope for Christ's church, for those that are believing in His Son, in the Lord's Son. And there is a strong warning at the end for those that are unbelieving. So we go back to John 3, verse 31. And I just want to clarify, as you read this, I know some of us have different translations. Uh, some translations will carry this quotation to the end of the chapter. And their understanding is that John the Baptist is our speaker in this verse, in these verses. Some translations stop the quotation at verse 30, understanding that what we just read is John the Apostle, the author of the book, speaking. So I'm going with the latter, that this is John the Apostle summarizing what has taken place. You may say, well, how can we not know? The reason we don't know is because in the Greek, there's no punctuation marks. There's no quotation marks, there's no periods, there's no spaces even in the original, the oldest manuscripts. So it's just a matter of translation. Is this John the Baptist? Is this John the Apostle? All that to say, it's God the Holy Spirit speaking, regardless of which John. Amen? So I just wanted to clarify that. If you hear me saying it's John the Apostle and you see the quotation go to the end. First thing I want to, I want to try to pull out here is that we have hope as Christ's church because we have a superior Savior. Verse 31, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet sadly and tragically, no one receives his testimony. Or the great majority of people don't receive his testimony. John tells us that the one that comes from heaven is above all. Because He comes from above. We have here what is known as the creator-creature distinction. You have the creator, you have Jesus, you have God, and you have everything else. 
whether, hev- whether angels, whether people, whether animals, whether galaxies in the universe, there is God, and then there is every other thing that God has created. And because Jesus is from above, he is rightly above all. He says that those of the earth, that is us, we speak in an earthly way, we function in an earthly way, we operate in an earthly way, because we are from the earth. That is all we know. But Jesus is the only one that has come from above, thus he is above all. There is, of course, many religions in the world today and always has been. When you think about the Hindu religion, uh, they worship some, there's not, a, there's not a certified number, but somewhere around 3,000 gods Hindus worship. Uh, when we think about Mormons, Mormons use a lot of our language, they speak about Jesus Christ, but they would say that we ourselves are able to become gods. They would even say that God the Father was once a man who has been exalted to godhood. Atheists, of course, would say that no God is the answer. That actually our hope for society is to get rid of all this talk about gods. But there is only one Savior that has come from heaven. There is only one Savior that can actually save and has the authority to do so because He has come from above So he is above all. And as we saw in the call to worship, the psalmist said that you are to be feared, Lord, above all gods, little g gods, because every other god is just an idol. It's just a false manifestation of the mind of man. So we have hope in Christ because he is a superior Savior. Ultimately, he is the only Savior. He is the only one who has come down from heaven. We go on to verse 34. He says, He who God has sent utters the words of God, speaking of Jesus, for He gives the Spirit without measure. He gives the Spirit without measure. And my second point is this, that we have hope in the Spirit unmeasured. God the Spirit indwells all believers. Amen? The Bible tells us that every person is indwelt by the Spirit of God. Paul would tell us that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So before Jesus comes to this earth, there is a need, a physical temple. That is the place on the earth where God's presence dwelt with His people. But now we read in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells within you? He goes on to say, we are the temple of the living God. Christ's church is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, we are living stones as we are building up this church. And every single Christian is indwelt with the Spirit of God. And we read here that He gives His Spirit without measure. He does not dole out small portions, a little bit to this person, maybe a little more to that person, But every person is given his spirit without measure. Is there any athletes in the room? Or maybe in times past, you were an athlete, football player, baseball player, wrestler. I know there's athletes in here. Gymnastics, swim, whatever it is. There there we got a brave person raise their hand. (laughs) 
It doesn't take long as you go onto the ball field or go onto whatever field to see that physical ability and talents and giftings are doled out in different measure. Some people just have a natural ability to pick up a bat or a ball or a mitt or get in a pool or whatever it is, and they can just excel, right? They just have that, that natural talent or ability. And there's others that have to labor and work their tail off just to be proficient at a sport or at a given activity. So it's not hard to see that as far as physical talents and abilities, they are not given out without measure. Some people are always picked first on the ball field, and some of us were sitting there at the end of the line <laughs> as they went through the scraps that were left over. But as God gives His Spirit, He tells us here that He gives Him without measure, that every Christian is indwelt with the Spirit of God. And this is hope for Christians in a lot of ways. It's hope in your sanctification, in your maturity, in your growing as a Christian. Do you ever feel like you just aren't growing in the Lord? That you're just kind of stagnant? You know, I'm a, I'm a believer, I'm trusting in Christ, I'm going to church, I'm reading my Bible. But is anything going on here? Am I, is anything happening? Maybe it's just me. But I think sometimes we all have that feeling like, is, is anything taking place here? Is God doing something? Am I just kind of stuck? Have I plateaued? Am I actually maybe rolling down the hill a little bit backwards? We read in Galatians chapter 5, these verses are in your handout. I'm going to kind of move fast for time's sake. But Galatians chapter 5, you know this passage. It's a familiar text. Verse 22, uh, Paul tells us that the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit of God in His church is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Peggy's got it, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What is the fruit of a tree? It is what the tree produces. It is what grows out of a tree. An apple tree grows apples because it is an apple tree. So these attributes are the produce of the Spirit indwelling Christ's church. And I say this to hopefully give you some hope that this is God's work that He does in us. That we may not feel like we're growing quickly, that sometimes we feel stagnant, but if the Holy Spirit indwells you, this is the fruit that He produces. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, does God call us just to sit back and say, all right, bring out that fruit, produce it now? No, He calls us to be kind. He calls us to love people. But that is one of the major roles of Christ's Spirit in His church, to produce this fruit in us. And I hope that that brings some hope as sometimes we can look at our own self and say, what, what's really going on here? Am I actually growing as a believer? And I want to say that if His Spirit is in you, as He is if you are a believer, then He is producing this fruit in you, even if we don't see it manifesting itself all the time. Amen. Uh, there is also hope in perseverance. Because the Spirit is given to all Christians without measure, there is hope in our perseverance. What I mean by perseverance is the fact that if you are saved, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, He will preserve your faith to glory. He will keep you until heaven. It is a promise from God. We read in Ephesians chapter 1, In Jesus, in Him, you also, when you heard the word 
of truth. This is verse 13. The gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I know, I assume many of you in this room are homeowners or at some point in your life have bought a home. So you know that when you go and buy a home, you make an offer, and if the offer is accepted, you then have to put down what? Earnest money, right? It's a surety, and it's, the money is basically saying, I'm serious, I want to enter into a contract, here's a small portion as a promise to say that the full amount is soon to follow. And Paul tells us here that the Spirit of God indwelling His church is that earnest money. It is the guarantee, it is the promise, it is the first installment promising that we will acquire possession of our full inheritance. So as the church is given His Spirit without measure, there is hope in our perseverance that the fact that we have His Spirit is God's down payment. It's God's earnest money to say you will receive your full inheritance in glory. It is a promise because you have been sealed by His Spirit. So there is hope there that God will preserve our faith to the end. I think there is also hope for the downcast. The fact that Christ has given His church His Spirit without measure brings hope for the downcast. Remember John 14, as Jesus is telling His disciples about the Spirit, He says, I will ask the Father... In 14, 16, and he will give you another helper or another comforter to be with you forever. Jesus says, when I leave, God is going to send this comforter, this helper. In the Greek, it is the word is a paraclete or paracletus. Uh, and it means one that comes alongside or one that walks with you. Here it's translated helper. Some Bibles, it's translated comforter. So we know that as Christ has given His church, His Spirit without measure, we have this helper, this comforter with us at all times. And we read in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. They were walking in the fear of the Lord, in reverence and awe of God, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We see that initially from the early church, that as the church was being built up, they had reverence for God, they were walking in the fear of the Lord, but they were also walking in the comforting care of God's Holy Spirit. So there is hope for those that are downcast, or when we are downcast, to know that God's Spirit, His Comforter, has been given to us, and He's been given without measure. And then lastly, there is hope in our evangelism. There is hope in our evangelism. Acts chapter 1, Jesus has resurrected. The tomb is empty. He's been seen by 500 or more people. He has uh, gone to His disciples and they have felt the wounds in His hands, in His side. He has sat and broken bread with them. And this is just before He ascends back to the right hand of the Father. And He tells them this in verse 8 of chapter 1 in Acts. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
To do what? To be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now I do want to note that it seems fairly obvious that God gives the church a special manifestation of His Spirit in the book of Acts. I mean, we have, we have the Apostle Paul working. He's sweat, there's sweat on his brow. He takes a handkerchief and wipes his brow and someone grabs the rag and goes and heals their friend with that rag. So God the Spirit was powerfully at work in the book of Acts as the church was initially being built up. But I don't think that that means this promise is not for all that have the Spirit. But God promises is we are to be His witnesses in all the world that His Spirit will empower us for that task. And I think that this hope in evangelism, as His Spirit indwells us, is twofold. I think, number one, on my side, I can have hope in my evangelism because I have His Spirit, because I know He's going to give me strength. I know He's going to give me the words. I know He's going to give me courage to speak. Now, God definitely wants me to pray and to ask for opportunities and when they come to open my mouth. But knowing that His Spirit indwells me and knowing that one of His roles is to empower me for that work, that when I open my mouth, He will give me words to speak. He will strengthen me. But I also know that it's the Spirit's work to take that word and apply it to the hearer. It's not about my eloquence. It's not about my amazing sermon that I give to some guy on the street. It's God's work to do what He wills with that Word. So I can trust that He's going to encourage me. He's going to embolden me. And I also trust that it, the results are on Him. It's not on me. I don't have to know all the verses. I don't have to have all the Bible memorized. I don't have to have perfect theology to share my faith or to share my testimony. I just open my mouth and trust the Lord leave it in his hands. I want to share a story briefly to illustrate this. And I've shared this here somewhere, but I think it was Sunday school. I don't think it was from the pulpit. But I had a teacher back in California at uh, Calvary Chapel Bible College. And he was walking at the school, or I don't think he was at a different place, a different school. He was walking and some guy came to him and asked him a question about Jesus. Knew that he was a pastor. And this guy was down and discouraged. And the teacher said, man, it was like heaven opened up. And he just began to speak to this guy. And, and it was one of those moments where, where he just felt like he was Charles Spurgeon preaching at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And he was just going for it. And the Spirit of God fell on him. And he was preaching with fire in and, and his bones. And he, was, and he gave him this great message about the gospel and, and to repent and believe in Jesus. And he just knew this guy was just going to fall on his face and just worship God and and repent and believe. And the guy kind of, huh, thanks. And he just walked off. And the pastor was like, Lord, that had to be you. I know you were doing something there. What what just happened? This, I, I, I said this great thing, and this guy just walked off. The pastor was kind of confused. He turned around to walk away, and he heard some crying. And he looked in this door, and he, he had been talking, and there was glass here, tinted glass of a classroom. And the door was open. And there was a guy in there. He peeked his head in. There was a guy sobbing. And this guy had stood there in the shadows and had heard this, this little sermonette this guy gave. And he believed in Christ right there in that moment at that place. And it's just funny to think that as we think we know what we're doing and we think we know what God's doing, 
We have no idea, but it is the Holy Spirit's activity in his work to take the words that we speak and apply them to whomever he will. And this guy thought he was speaking to this man. He thought this word was for this man, and God used it for someone else. I just hope that encourages someone that the results are not up to us. You know, we can think we have the great words, or that was the perfect, man, I just said it just right, and the person not hear it. Or we can bumble and stumble and stammer and think we just messed up the whole thing, and that person could come to faith. It is God's work to accomplish. So I hope that is hope in salvation. I mean in evangelism. We move on to this last verse, and there's a lot here in this in this short verse. Verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. I just want to stop there. Whoever believes has. Has is said in the present tense, and it means to possess currently, to have. You have eternal life. Whoever has believed in Jesus has eternal life. It has been acquired through faith in Jesus. J.C. Ryle says it like this, Pardon, peace, and a complete title to heaven are an immediate possession. They are a believer's own from the very moment he puts faith in Christ. John tells us that whoever believes in the Son currently, right now, has eternal life. It's not a maybe one day, it's not something we hope to acquire it's not if I make it to the end, if it's we are truly trusting in Jesus Christ to save us from our sins, then he says, right now you have eternal life. I think of it like this. Imagine if your mother or your father came to you, and they were up in years, and they had a home, and they owned the home outright. It's paid off. And we all know the difficulties that happen with the state taxes and all of that when someone passes and the government likes to, you know, they got to get their hands in there a little bit. And your mother or your father says, hey, we want to give you our home. We want to we sign over the deed and put it in your name. But they still want to live out their days in that house. So you go to the lawyer, you go to the bank, you do whatever is necessary, and they sign the house into your name. You own that home. It is yours. The title deed is yours. It's in your hand. You may not possess the house. You may not live in it yet. But for all intents and purposes, it is your house. And John tells us the same here, that if you have believed in Christ, eternal life is yours. Your seat at the table is there, ready for you. Heaven awaits you. It is just a matter of time until the day that Christ calls you home into His presence. And I think this truth is great hope for the Christian that we have eternal life now. You know, I spoke to a I spoke to a man this week. He's a family member of mine. Uh, and I got to see this hope played out in real time. He uh, is someone that's close to me, someone who suffered mightily from cancer, went through all the treatments, radiation and chemo and all of that. And the Lord saw him through, but the treatments had a strong effect on his body. And he feels like his time is, is withering away. And we, 
nobody knows when they're going to go, right? But he just has a feeling that the Lord's doing something, and his, his time is not that long, and he's wanting to make preparations. But I bring this up because as we had a conversation just out in the driveway, you know, he looked me square in the face, confidently, casually, and said, I'm ready to go. I'm at peace. I know where I'm going, and I'm ready to go. And that just does so. That moves my soul to hear those words. Because honestly, for me at 38 years old, it's easy to say, I'm ready to go whenever the Lord takes me. But in reality, death is, is far from my mind right now. And you know how it is when we're young, the younger we are, the farther death seems away. But to hear those words from someone who really thinks their time is short, to say, I am at peace and I know where I'm going and I'm ready to go because I have eternal life. The world can't give that sort of hope. There's no medicine, there's no pill, there's no nothing that can give that sort of hope that a person can look death square in the face and say, I'm ready to go. I'm at peace because I'm going to see Jesus. And that's the kind of hope that every Christian has. If you have believed in Jesus, John tells us, you have eternal life. Again in verse 36, he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey or whoever does not trust or believe the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. But lastly, as far as hope, I see here hope in wrath relinquished. The wrath of God relinquished from believers. We're reminded in this passage of the great pardon that is ours in Christ. That God, the righteous judge, has removed His wrath from all that believe. And He has placed it upon Jesus. I heard a story this week of a man who is sitting on death row. And I think he's been there for maybe 20 years or something. And he's gone through all of the procedures that are his, that, that he can avail himself of to try to appeal and try to slow down justice and everything he can to, to try to not um, face his execution. And he has ran through all the appellate courts and he has no more options. Uh, so this person has got a lawyer and their argument is that he has some sort of, of disease, some sort of sickness that would cause the lethal injection to be excruciatingly painful. And he's, his argument is that it would be inhumane for him to be put to death. So he's trying to, obviously, he's trying to preserve his life. He's trying to do it with the legal system. That, that's how our legal system works. Um, and I bring this up because this person may maneuver himself to the point where he dies of natural causes. The reality is that the large majority of those on death row they die of natural causes. They're never actually put to death. He may evade the full payment for his crime. But there is no appeal. There's no, legally, there's no legal maneuvering that one can do in God's court. God will always serve up His justice for those that have broken His law and for those that are not trusting in Jesus. And we know that there is no refuge apart from Jesus. There's no appeal. There's no, there's no legal maneuvering one can do. There is only refuge in Jesus. Now for the believer, I believe this is great hope. Great hope that we will not experience His wrath 
great hope that even know that we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And the Bible tells us that the payment for that sin, the wage for that sin is eternal death. That God has spared us. The divine governor has pardoned our crimes. He has stayed our execution and he has placed our penalty upon his dear son. And that is hope for all believers. That we've been spared from judgment. We've been spared from wrath. But lastly, there is here a fearful warning for the unbelieving. Fearful warning for the unbelieving. He says again, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, for the wrath of God remains upon him. Whoever does not and whoever has not trusted in the Lord Jesus will not see life will not receive eternal life, but they will experience eternal death and God's wrath. Now, now this is not a popular topic in our day. You know, many would say that God is a God of love, which He is, so He can't have wrath. How can a God that is loving judge sin? How could a God that is loving punish people for their sin? The fact that God has wrath against sin does not mean that He's a, he's a meanie that just wants to blot us all out means that He is holy. He loves what is good, and He hates what is evil. I want to read you a quote from Richard Phillips. He says, A God without wrath would be a moral monstrosity. A God who is not furious against evil is not a worthy God. Now, when we see a person that is indifferent to evil, wickedness, we think something is wrong with them. We think they should be locked up when they have no concern for wicked deeds and evilness. For some reason, when it comes to God, we think, many people at least, think He just has to look the other way. That His love has to trump His justice. But John is very clear here that for all that do not believe, they will not see life. And that God's wrath remains upon them. They will be like that death row inmate. They can try everything in their power to game the system, file appeal, after appeal to try to be spared, but in the end, in God's court, justice is always served. Because there is no hope apart from Jesus Christ. There is only hope in Jesus. But just as there is hope for the Christian, there is hope for the unbeliever. There is hope to be found in our Lord Jesus Christ. John gives us here only two choices. There's no mediating, there's no middle road. There's no mediating position. He says there is those that have faith, and he says there is those that are not. And those that have faith will receive eternal life. They have it now. Those that do not will not see life, but God's wrath will remain upon them. So my question as we close is this. Is your hope in Jesus today? Is your hope in Jesus today? Because if it is, praise the Lord, I heard that yes. If it is, you have much to be hopeful for. You have much to be hopeful for in Jesus. But if it is not, there is a fearful warning for you today. To turn to the living God. To cry out to Jesus in forgiveness. So that you do receive eternal life. And you will be spared from His holy judgment.